Welcome to the Vape Passion Show. This is episode three, and today we're going to talk about a proposed bill in Georgia that would force vape shops out of business, researchers using e-cigs to replace tobacco in surgical patients, studies that misunderstand how vaping works, the announcement of a study to determine if vaping actually helps people quit smoking, a study showing formaldehyde and acrolein while vaping, an FDA-funded study using Google search data to write a misinformed report, e-cigs shut down hundreds of immune system genes while regular cigs don't, the Mayo Clinic and a Brown University researcher claim smoking is not worse than vaping. Washington State Department of Health says smoking is no worse than vaping. The CDC exaggerated claims about success of tobacco quit lines, how to rewrap your batteries, when you should replace your batteries, what people misunderstand about nicotine, an Instagram account posting nature-based vape photos, and a U.S. congressman vaping while legislating. So let's get started. Okay, so first I'm just going to give you a little update on what's going on. First, I have a giveaway going for a K-Box 200, a courtesy of directvapor.com. So... Go to my website and enter. The giveaway will end on February 26th. So I just won this. It's the W pin, I believe, from whiterhinoproducts.com. This is actually a, it's like a dab and wax vaporizer. I don't smoke weed because it makes me paranoid, but I've been interested in vaping CBD oil for a while. I hear a lot about the benefits of using it for uh, sleep and uh, pain relief, things like that. I actually got into it, started learning a bit about it when my wife tore her, her meniscus during a run last year. We thought about getting her some CBD, but we couldn't find any CBD flowers that she could smoke for an affordable price. Until I found out about this, I didn't actually realize that you could get like a CBD wax, and, and that seems to be pretty affordable from what I've seen online, so I'm excited to try this out. All right, so let's get into advocacy. So there have been a couple of alerts on CASA.org. One of them was for Vermont. It was a, a bill proposing an indoor vaping ban. That hearing has already happened, so there's nothing you can do about it now, I, I don't believe. But uh, check out, if you live in Vermont, check out CASA.org. Look into the bill and see if there's anything you can still do. So the second one here is for Georgia residents. The bill, HB 907, would require licensing and manufacturing requirements of, of vape businesses. CASA says that this is likely the most destructive, most poorly written piece of legislation we'll see this year. And this bill actually already passed in Indiana, but it doesn't take effect until July of 2016, so we don't know the effects of it yet, but it looks pretty damaging. It requires manufacturers of e-liquid to have 24-7 security cameras on their on their production and storage rooms. The manufacturers also have to submit blueprints of their facilities and they have to get a, a permit from the, the Alcohol and Tobacco Commissions of their state. So the big concern here is that manufacturers don't have the money to install these expensive security systems in their shops or in their facilities. So they're just simply not going to be allowed to be sold in Indiana. This goes for any e-liquid manufacturer in Indiana or not. If there's a manufacturer out of state that's not willing to put in the money to, to install these security cameras, they can't sell their e-juice in a shop in Indiana. This is going to make vape shops in Indiana look pretty bare. They're not going to have any e-juice to sell, so how are they going to make money? They're, a lot of them are going to have to go out of business. So yeah, if you live in Georgia, go to casa.org right away. Okay, let's get into some of the current research. So it's well known that cigarette smoking is a risk factor for post-operative complications in surgery patients. So the Mayo Clinic, they decided to do a, a research study. Their study was aimed at determining the feasibility of using electronic cigarettes to help patients cut down or quit smoking, only for the purposes of reducing risks during surgery. So they found 67 patients who were scheduled for elective surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. They were 
were given a supply of electronic cigarettes to use prior to and two weeks after their surgery, and they encouraged them to use the electronic cigarette whenever they craved a cigarette. So they found that the average cigarette consumption decreased from 15 per person to 7.6 over the study period. So patients reduced the amount of cigarettes that they smoked by more than half, and at 30 days, 11 out of those 67 people had reported that they abstained from cigarettes entirely. The pilot data suggests that electronic cigarettes are feasible and well accepted in surgical patients, and the Mayo Clinic acknowledges that electronic cigarettes are worthy of exploration as a harm reduction strategy in patients. Okay, so this next one is some news about a new study. It's a five-year study announced by Dr. Mark Eisenberg. He's a cardiologist at Jewish General Hospital in Canada. He gives a lot of smoking cessation talks at the hospital where he works. He's very passionate about getting people to quit smoking. What he wants to do is start a five-year clinical trial to look at how effective e-cigarettes are at aiding smoking cessation. This is going to be funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and they will follow 486 outpatient smokers at 19 sites across Canada. The smokers will be randomized into three groups. So one group will be given e-cigarettes that contain nicotine and counseling. The second group will receive e-cigarettes that do not contain nicotine, but they will receive counseling. And the third group will only receive counseling. So the researchers will supply the smokers with e-cigarettes for 12 weeks, then follow up with them after six months and a year, observing whether they graduate to total non-smoking, if they continue smoking with the use of e-cigarettes, or if they return entirely to regular cigarettes. Dr. Mark Eisenberg, he said, we have great hopes that e-cigarettes will be helpful for people trying to quit smoking. Okay, moving on to the next one. So I saw this one on Reddit. There's a study showing that vaping at high wattages could be producing formaldehyde and acrolein. So the goal of the study was to measure carbonyl formation at various wattages and coil temperatures. So the researchers used a 1.6 ohm nichrome 80 11 wrap build inside of a KFUN 3.1 with a cotton wick. They used this on an iStick 30. So they fired it into a smoking machine, collected the vapor, and put it through a chemical analysis, and they measured the temperature coil using a FLIR camera. The regimen was three second puffs with a 20 second break in between each puff. They measured at 5 watts, 10 watts, 15 watts, and 20 watts. They also used a human volunteer to sample the, the device at each power level to provide his or her satisfaction with the heat, flavor, and vapor production. Basically as a, a way to try to prevent them from testing something that no normal vapor would be doing. They used Heaven Juice Seven Leaves Tobacco, which is a, a house blend from Flavor Art. The acetaldehyde levels found in the study are 20 times lower than those that can cause sensitivity in the general population. Acrolein was not detected until they reached 20 watts, and it was not detected at all at 5, 10, and 15 watts. The researchers also compared the numbers to cigarette smoke, and what they found is that about 15 puffs off of this KFUN at 10 watts provides about nine times less formaldehyde than one low-tar cigarette, and the levels of acetaldehyde found were 1,200 to 2,100 times lower than, than in a regular cigarette. So they also tested just straight VG and straight PG without any other uh, flavorings or nicotine in it. So they found that 100% PG liquid produced less formaldehyde than the 100% VG liquid, but the 100% VG liquid produced zero acetaldehydes at 10 and 15 watts and a tiny amount at 20 watts while the PG liquid produced a lot higher levels of acetaldehyde. The 100% PG solution produced no acrolein at all, even at 20 watts, while the 100% VG liquid produced acrolein only at 20 watts. So something to note here, that even though they noticed some of these carbonyls at 20 watts, the volunteer vapor, the, who is experienced and did provide his input, his or her input, 
on the sensation of all these different wattages found that at 20 watts he was getting a burning sensation in his throat so on this particular k-fun build at 20 watts showed them that a, a regular vapor would not be vaping at this level so that what that is saying to me and to other people who have looked at this is that he was that at 20 watts they were pretty much getting burnt hits and that's why they were getting these carbonyls from the looks of it it looks like as long as you're not getting dry hits or burnt hits then you don't have anything to worry about okay this next article is on Ars Technica it's about a recent presentation it's a study but it's not published yet the researchers are working on getting it published in a journal but it was presented at the annual conference of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Washington so what they did is they swabbed the noses of smokers, vapors, and non-users and compared the genetic information that they found from those swabs. So what they found was that smoking suppresses the activity of 53 genes involved in the immune system and that vaping also suppresses those same immune genes in addition to 305 other immune system genes. So the results suggest but don't prove that ESIG users might have compromised immune responses, which could make them potentially more vulnerable to infections and diseases. Uh, anyone who has smoked and switched to vaping knows that, um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of this. That when you quit smoking, you get sick a lot less often, and a lot of vapors will attest to that. Now, obviously, that's anecdotal evidence, but still. So the researchers said that whether the imbalance caused by e-cigs leads to boosted infection risks or other immune diseases, we don't know. So they're not trying to claim that, that this immune system gene suppression actually does cause sickness or, or more vulnerability to infections. They also took a look at gene-altering effects of different flavors. So what they found to have the most gene-altering effects were additives that taste like cinnamon and butter flavors, which is something that we already all know. So one of the researchers, he said, e-cigarettes are not one thing, and that devices, liquids, and fl flavorings vary widely, and really that they're in the, the beginning of understanding toxicity. And I think it's important to mention that because the problem with these e-cig studies is that they keep tossing e-cigs into one bin when they really are not. So it's good that the author, that the researcher recognized that because there really are so many different components to it. Okay, and this last study related article is about a new FDA funded San Diego State University study. So this study is research compiled based on Google Trends data and Google AdWords data. So Carl Phillips pretty much dissected the whole report and calls out everything that's wrong with it really. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. There was just so much wrong with it that I'm not even going to talk about the things that he talked about, but you should go read it and check it out. One thing that I wanted to add to it is that I work in internet marketing professionally and I know a lot about keyword research and keyword data. Google Trends data is known to not be very accurate. It's more of a general overall picture of keyword data. It's not very accurate. So what the researchers concluded based on this keyword data and what they feel is troubling is that searchers are searching for terms like best e-cig, buy vapes, or shop vaping, which is really weird because who searches for terms like that? 
But anyway, they're concerned about people searching for buying related keywords and not informational or educational type keywords like learning about the safety of vaping or health concerns regarding vaping. But something that I know about Google AdWords data, which is the data that they use to come up with these conclusions, is that AdWords is designed for advertising. So Google only reports or mostly reports on keywords related to buying or purchasing products because that's the those are the kind of ads that make companies money. They don't report on informational or educational keywords. So for them for SDSU to come to these conclusions, it's because there's there's they're not seeing all of the the data. So really this research is all useless. It doesn't show the whole picture of vaping and it doesn't tell anyone anything about what people are actually searching for. So that whole study is just a big waste of FDA funded money. Okay, so now on to some news regarding anti-vaping organizations. So Dr. Michael Siegel, a professor at the Boston University School of Public Health, he published two articles last week with organizations claiming that vaping is not safer than smoking. So in a 60-second video called the Mayo Clinic Minute, according to a transcript of the video, the Mayo Clinic stated, e-cigarettes, they're safer than regular cigarettes, right? Well, maybe not. And then they go on to talk about how there's a bunch of health risks in regards to vaping, including airway toxicity, inflammation, suppression of the immune system, and increased risk of infection. And then the next day, a Brown University researcher, Dr. Amanda Jamieson, she was quoted making a similar claim, saying, people are billing it as a safer alternative but I don't think you can really say that. And the day before that, the Washington State Department of Health sent out a message saying, people may be attracted to e-cigarettes because of unproven claims that they are safer and more accepted than traditional cigarettes. And as Dr. Siegel points out, the clear implication of this is that people should not switch from conventional cigarettes to e-cigarettes because e-cigarettes are not safer and not more accepted than traditional cigarettes. Dr. Siegel says that this is tantamount to public health malpractice. He says, no reasonable state health department would bemoan the fact that smokers are quitting, even if they are quitting by use of electronic cigarettes. And no reasonable state health department would provide false health information to the public. And to discuss the statement about unproven claims, he says, there's no legitimate scientific question about whether vaping is safer than smoking. Even the most vehement anti-vaping scientists acknowledge that vaping is safer. And then going back to the to the Mayo Clinic and, and Brown University statements, the claims about airway toxicity and all that stuff. So he says that evidence of airway toxicity, immune suppression, and increased risk of infection come purely from animal studies, and extrapolating any of that data to humans is premature. And research has shown that unlike smoking, vaping does not impair respiratory function or cause airway obstruction. So yeah, two big organizations and a researcher coming out saying that smoking is not worse than vaping when there's clearly data that shows that it is. Okay, moving on. So this one is from Brad Rodu. The article is titled, CDC Exaggerates Smoking Quit Line Success. There's a new study from the Centers of Disease Control where they state that 1-2% to of adult tobacco users in the U.S. access quit lines each year. So the CDC offered results for the year 2011 based on telephone and web-based quit lines. They reported that 32% of quit line users and 27% of web-based users use these quit lines to quit smoking. But what Brad Rodu mentions here in the article is that these numbers were inflated by manipulating the numbers. So out of the 16,000 plus participants in the program, over half were lost to follow-up, plus another nearly 4,000 participants were dropped from the final results, which means that the CDC based their calculations on only 25% of the original enrollees, which clearly skews the results. So based on Brad Rodu's math, the success rates are really about 8.1% for quitline users and 6.7% for web users, which 
comes down to about 400 people total quitting out of 16,000 people, which is really small. So Brad Rodu's final statement here at the end is that using tax dollars to, f to defend wasteful programs with contrived analytics is a bad public policy. Okay, this next one is pretty funny. This is from ecigarettereview.com. They point out five different studies that have been done in the recent years showing how researchers really don't understand what they're doing. The first one here, this was from the New England Journal of Medicine, the, the infamous formaldehyde study. So the combination of the atomizer and the settings that they used on the device leads to dry hits, pretty much. They didn't think to test it out or, or even do any research to find out if what they were doing was how vapors would actually use a product. They, they took an atomizer, took the settings of the device way up, and burnt the hell out of the cotton. So that's why they found formaldehyde. And no vapor would ever vape like that. Okay, number two. So this study was looking at the effects of vapor on mice using uh, RDA dripping. But when you see the photo that they published along with the study, you can see that they didn't actually use an RDA, which is what people use to drip with. They disassembled a coil from a tank and dripped on that. You know, that's not how it works. Okay, number three. This study concluded that e-cigarettes impair antibacterial anti and antiviral defenses in mice. So they used Enjoy Sigalikes, exposed mice for three hours per day. The device was being puffed once per minute, which adds up to 180 puffs per day. The researchers explained that their e-cigarettes were placed once per week, and that adds up to about 1,260 puffs per week on one Sigalike, one Sigalike cartridge. So Enjoy's website explained that their cartridges were only good for 180 puffs, then you have to discard it. That's just one day of use in this study. So pretty much after one day of use, they were just burning the cotton. There was no e-juice left. It makes sense that it wouldn't be healthy to mice or anyone. Okay, number four. This study was spreading concern about cinnamon flavors. Well, when Dr. Konstantinos Farsalinos investigated the, the study, he found that half of the liquids that they tested were concentrated flavorings and not actually e-liquids. Okay, and number five, this study was to determine the, the amount of toxicity of e-cig vapor on cells. And another one that Dr. Farsalinos looked at, the researchers were trying to vape vegetable glycerin in a low-quality clearomizer on a vape pen. And anyone who has ever used a vape pen knows uh, VG does not wick. It does not wick well. They got their toxicity results based on the fact that th the wicks were pretty much dry. So it's just funny to see how researchers, they try to make conclusions based on, a, on things that they just don't understand. I don't know why it's so hard for them to, to just go to Google or ask an expert. Okay, so let's look at some stuff from Reddit this past week. User H2Ogi posted a picture of his, his newly wrapped newly rewrapped battery. He says it was easy, but what does he do with the bits left, at, left over at the end? So I've never actually rewrapped batteries myself, although I do have some rewraps in the mail, so I will be soon. But he mentions, he shows a picture here showing that the battery he rewrapped has a little bit of extra material at the end. He's wondering what to do about it. So I guess it's a pretty common issue to have because there's several users in here giving recommendations. Um, one of the things they mention is that a lot of manufacturers, or one in particular, batwraps.com, they, they recommend trimming five millimeters off. And then everyone below that comment says, yeah, don't do five millimeters. That's too much. Do two to three millimeters. Okay. And Mooch, he also published a post on Reddit last week, a post about when you should replace a battery. This post has quite a few tips. Some are more obvious than others, but he says you should replace your battery when you start getting more frequent low battery alerts from your mod, or if you use a mechanical mod or a unregulated mod that it doesn't hit as hard or doesn't last as long. If the battery starts getting warmer during use or during charging, if your batteries no longer get to 4.2 volts on the, on the charger, if you see physical damage to the wrap, or if you see physical damage to the battery, such as dents or dings, if it vents or leaks fluid, that's probably one of the worst things you can do. If 
if the battery has rusted badly. He says that a few small spots of rust are okay, but if rust spots are pushing the wrap up or growing larger, then replace it. The battery has been discharged below two volts for a long period of time. And then a couple of tips here. He says you don't need to replace a battery on a fixed schedule. Low power vapors can easily get a couple of years out of their batteries. He says never throw your battery in the trash, always recycle it. Many electronics or home improvement stores and vape shops will accept your batteries for recycling. And he says you don't need to replace a battery if you've dropped it as long as there's no physical damage. All right, moving on to the next topic. EcigaretteDirect.co.uk published an article titled Propylene Glycol in E-Cigarettes is PG Dangerous to Inhale. So this is probably the most in-depth article I've seen on PG ever. You're probably not going to find anything online that has more information about propylene glycol than this post does. First, they go into a primer about PG, what it is and what, how it works and what's in it, how it's used in pharmaceuticals and food and cosmetics. And then they go into some research on animal studies on PG inhalation. The, and the conclusion of that is is pretty much that animal studies show no substantial risk from inhaling PG, even in high concentration. Although there might be some irritation and other minor effects, but overall it doesn't seem to be harmful. So then they go into some research about whether or not PG is safe for human consumption or for humans to inhale. So the amount of evidence here is limited, uh, but what we do know is that it is a bit of an irritant, but other than that, nothing, not much else happens to anyone who consumes it over short-term exposure. So moving from there, they start talking about studies on PG using theatrical fog machine, which which almost always use propylene glycol. They make sure to point out that the biggest difference here is that while we we directly inhale vapor, but people, actors who are around fog machines, they're only around it while they're working and not for long periods of time, but the research behind it is still useful. So there was one study who looked at 101 people who worked close to fog machines. Uh, the study found that they had slightly reduced lung function, coughing, and dry throat. But then a bigger study came along looking at actors who were exposed to theatrical fog for two years. They followed 439 people. The results of that study showed no significant changes in lung function or the vocal cords, nor was it associated with increased rates of asthma. Although the people who were exposed to the highest levels of PG were more likely to report nose, throat, and breathing related symptoms. Now in regards to studies on PG and vaping, there really isn't any long-term evidence, but what little evidence there is seems to agree with everything else that we already know that it's, it doesn't appear to be dangerous, but it is it can cause irritation. And anyone who has vaped for longer than a couple of weeks knows that these irritations usually go away unless you're allergic to PG. Now as for secondhand exposure, the author of this article looked at workplace exposure limits in the UK, in the US, and the Netherlands. So both in the UK and the US, the workplace exposure limits are 10 milligrams per cubic meter. In the Netherlands, it's 50 milligrams. Studies that we've seen show different ranges of detection. Um, some studies show that it's completely undetectable, and some studies have shown that it has gone as high as 2.2 milligrams per cubic meter, which is way below even the US and the UK's workplace exposure limit. According to a researcher, Igor Burstein, he worked out that the worst case scenario would be vaping 25 milliliters, 95% PG per day, could increase the levels to 6 milligrams per cubic meter, which is still below the workplace exposure limit. And 25 milliliters per day, that's that's a lot of vaping. So it doesn't really seem to be much of a concern, but if you are concerned about any potential harm, it's recommended that you minimize the amount of it you inhale. Um, Dr. Farsalinos suggests that it's better to vape with higher nicotine than to decrease your nicotine and vape more often to feel satisfied. So to minimize the risk of PG, use a better atomizer, use higher nicotine, and vape less often. Okay, this next one I found on vapenewsmagazine.com. So they discovered these two guys who have an Instagram account at Scenic Vapors. So what they do is that they publish cloud checks promoting vaping in nature. So the two guys who created this, they're, they've stated that their main goal was to inspire other people to get outside and enjoy the beauty that this world has to offer. So it's a cool account you should follow, but also Vape News Magazine has partnered with these guys to have the chance of having your photo published in a vape pictorial, in a vape news column. So if you want to get featured, you have to submit your photo to at Scenic Vapors 
on Instagram with the hashtag CloudCheck. You have to follow Vape Magazine, Scenic Vapors, Drippin underscore Balls, and at Yogi underscore one underscore Kenobi underscore SOV. And you have to use the hashtag Vape Magazine, CloudCheck, and Scenic Vapors. A lot of stuff, but I'll, I'll put up a picture and I'll also include it in the description and in the show notes. So you don't have to do all of that. So if you only want to be featured on the Instagram page, you can just submit a photo. But if you want to be featured in the Vape Pictorial, you have to do all of that stuff and submit a high resolution image. Okay, and this next one is probably something you've already seen because everybody is talking about it. A U.S. congressman was vaping during le legislation. So, Duncan Hunter, he's a U.S. representative from California, has been in the news quite a bit lately, actually, when he came out for vaping and the benefits of vaping and claiming that vaping can help people quit smoking. Um, this was about two months ago. So, just last week, during a congressional hearing where they were discussing an amendment that would ban vaping on a plane, Duncan Hunter, he took out his vaporizer and vaped on it in protest of the amendment. Um, unfortunately, the the amendment was upheld. Yeah, that's been big news the past week. Okay, and that's it. I'm going to close out the show with a video titled Truth About Vaping, The Nicotine Misconception, because I think everyone needs to see this. Um, nicotine gets a bad rap, and it really shouldn't, and this, this video will explain why. I asked the creator of this video for permission to use it, so I, do, I did get that. Um, before I jump into the video, I just want to remind you to get in on the giveaway. Go to my website, vapepassion.com. I did a review for the KBOC, a quick look, actually, and that's where you'll find the entry form. So you have until February 26th. Um, so yeah, thanks guys for watching, and uh, I'll catch you next time. Since the dawn of anti-smoking campaigns, we have been told that nicotine is the ultimate enemy, a chemical as addictive as heroin. This is the basis of many anti-vaping campaigns and the reasoning behind classifying electronic cigarettes as a tobacco product. But if nicotine is really so dangerous, why are nicotine replacement therapies like gums and patches available at virtually every drugstore, sometimes right next to the candy and magazines, with no prescription necessary? Is it possible that everything we think we know about nicotine is a lie? The Harvard School of Public Health conducted a study of 787 smokers who had recently quit and found that over the long term, nicotine patches and gums were no more helpful to smokers than quitting cold turkey. If nicotine is one of the most addictive chemicals on the planet, why couldn't these people quit by simply getting their nicotine from somewhere else? Maybe because nicotine by itself isn't what creates the addiction. Scientists have always looked at nicotine addiction in the context of it being in tobacco cigarettes. The latest research, however, is beginning to show that nicotine by itself may not be very addictive. Two independent studies, one at the University of California, Irvine, and one in France, both discovered that getting animals addicted to nicotine alone is actually quite difficult, unless the nicotine is mixed with other chemicals found in cigarettes. The combination of nicotine and other chemicals in tobacco cigarette smoke are likely to be what creates the intense addiction. Nicotine alone isn't enough. So if it's not nicotine, then what is it? We know that cigarette smoke generates over 7,000 chemicals, many of which are poisonous and cause cancer. What you may not know is that some of the ingredients also contain MAOIs, chemicals used in some antidepressants. MAOIs in cigarettes cause what is oftentimes referred to as the smoker's high, an increase in serotonin, which causes a rush of good feelings and helps stabilize your mood very similar to the effect many illegal and addictive drugs have on the brain. Now this is when the heroin comparison starts to make sense. So nicotine may not be very addictive by itself, but it can still kill you, right? Highly concentrated nicotine is toxic, however the amount found in store-bought e-liquids is extremely diluted. Most household cleaners contain ingredients that, when in their pure form, are toxic as well. 
Additionally, medications approved by the FDA, which are used by millions of people, are also toxic if taken higher than the prescribed dosage. E-liquid and nicotine usage follow the same standards. Anti-vaping campaigns have often suggested that calls to poison control centers have increased significantly as of late due to nicotine's toxic nature, but they fail to tell you how incredibly small those numbers are compared to calls received about normal household items. Currently, studies are being conducted on the therapeutic effects of nicotine on neurological diseases like Parkinson's, the early stages of Alzheimer's, ADHD, and schizophrenia. And once again, flying in the face of everything we thought we knew about nicotine, these researchers have not reported signs of nicotine addiction in their patients, and results appear promising in the early stages. We've heard evidence that nicotine itself may not be overtly addictive, and this theory is supported by the evidence that many electronic cigarette users reduce or completely eliminate their nicotine levels over time. Without the chemicals present in tobacco cigarette smoke, the nicotine addiction created by the cocktail of ingredients in tobacco smoke is less intense and therefore easier to reduce with vaping. Many e-cig users were previously unable to quit smoking with nicotine patches or gums, but experienced more success with vaping because it closely mimics the habitual and emotional sensations of smoking, and because it's a faster method of nicotine delivery than gums or patches, a key factor in their success rate, according to researchers. Nicotine is the primary ingredient of focus in electronic cigarettes by politicians and anti-vaping campaigns, and their argument is that nicotine is dangerous and therefore must be regulated as a tobacco product. However, we've seen evidence that nicotine alone is likely not the primary cause of tobacco addiction and may actually be able to help treat many neurological diseases. Where, then, is the basis for putting it in the same category as dangerous and toxic tobacco cigarettes? That's a question you may want to ask your legislators.